All right, let's pray. Lord, thanks so much for your goodness and uh, just for your word and uh, just the privilege to sit and read it, talk about it, hear from you. And so, Lord, we do pray that you would just speak to our hearts this morning as you so graciously do. And we're so thankful for that. So have your way with us now, please. In Jesus' name, amen. Turn, if you would, to Hebrews chapter 7. Lord willing, we're going to read 7 and 8. And see what the Lord would have for us. So, in review, we're talking about uh, the book of Hebrews is written to uh, keep in mind the first century Jews who converted to Christianity. So, they've got a very Jewish background, a very Jewish culture, very Jewish mindset, and a very Jewish temptation to revert back to their religious system. And so the whole message, the whole point of the book of Hebrews is Jesus is so much better than that old religious system, that Old Testament system, even though that was, you know, ordained by God. But now in this era, the time since Jesus uh, has been on earth, that uh, now during this time we approach Jesus, we approach God through the person of Jesus Christ very personally. Now, the reality is, um, you know, Galatians, Paul talks about in the book of Galatians, it's not like you approach God one way in the Old Testament time and you approach him another way in the New Testament time. As, God, as Paul says in, in Galatians, Abraham even was justified by what? Faith. And so it was faith. It was faithful obedience to what God would have him uh, do and live and, and all of that. And in our time, we still respond to God through faith. It's just that now we know, now we've seen, now we've experienced that who the faith is in. The faith is in the person of Jesus Christ. And so because of that, we don't have to revert back to the Old Testament system. We don't have to revert back to our religious system. And for us... We may be not, maybe not Jewish by nature, but we are very religious by nature. We are very religious by nature. I don't care if you're a full-blown atheist. You're religious by nature. Raise your hand if you are right now sitting in the seat that you usually sit in. I said wave it. I said raise it. I didn't say wave it. There was a story I heard one time about a guy who said, never mind. It's so bad. It's the only thing you would remember of, of today. Uh, but I'll tell you later. Remind me. Um, so we're all religious by nature. We sit in the same seats. We feel secure sometimes in our religiousness. And so, you know, don't think, well, this is for the Hebrews. It's not for me. It's very much for us because we're religious by nature. So uh, these, these lessons apply. So um, in that, uh, the writer of Hebrews is going through all these various aspects to explain, aspects really of the Old, Old Testament Jewish mindset to explain why Jesus is so much better. Today we talk a little more about the priesthood of Jesus 
is better than the priesthood of the Old Testament system. And that's chapter 7. And then chapter 8 uh, talks about why we appreciate that that's significant in our practical daily living. Okay, so fair enough. Everybody find Hebrews chapter 7? All right, stick your finger there and turn over to Genesis chapter 14. We've read this a couple times lately. We'll just do it again here to just kind of give ourselves some context. We're going to talk in chapter, you know, it's, uh, Nate mentioned on Wednesday night uh, when we went through Hebrews that, you know, keep in mind we're used to, uh, to a Western type of, of literature where we make a point and then we make a next point and then, you know, uh, it's very sort of linear in our thinking. And, and the Eastern literature is, you know, almost a little more like painting a collage. And so having said that, um, chapter 5 talked a little bit about the Old Testament um, priest by the name of Melchizedek, right? And then he kind of paused that for a, for a bit in chapter 6. We read about last week. And... Um, you know, because he felt like he needed to go back and lay some more groundwork, and then he picks back up on Melchizedek in chapter 7, and so that's why we're back to Melchizedek. Genesis chapter 14, starting in verse uh, 14. I was in Exodus 14, wondering what this had to do with the Red Sea. You thought I was perfect. <laughs> now, when Abram heard that his brother was taken captive, he armed his 318 trained servants who were born in his own house and went in pursuit as far as Dan, Dan being way up in the north. He divided his forces against them by night, and he and his servants attacked them and pursued them as far as Hobah, which is north of Damascus. So he brought back all the goods and also brought back his brother Lot and his goods. Lot had been captured in the midst of this skirmish between a group of kings on one side and a group of kings on the other side. And, and the king of Sodom, I'm sorry. Yeah, so he brought back all of his goods. And he also brought back his brother Lot and his goods as well as the women and the people. And the king of Sodom went out to meet him in the valley of Shava, which is, that is, the king's valley. And after his return from the defeat of Kedorlaomer, and the kings who were with him. Then, this is what I want us to catch today. Then Melchizedek, king of Salem, brought out bread and wine. He was the priest of God Most High. Now, this is interesting. Number one, throughout the Old Testament history, throughout the Old Testament law, throughout the Old Testament culture, everybody knew that the king and the priest were two different people, two different offices, okay? The, the priests were descendants of Aaron. They were descendants of Levi through the, through the line of Aaron. And the kings, uh, well, after David, they were all from the line of David, okay? At least in the southern kingdom of Judah. But anyway, they were, the, the priests and the kings were not to basically ever be the same person. But here we have something very curious. This guy, Melchizedek, was the king of Salem, and he brought out bread and wine, but he was also the priest of who? God Most High. So the Bible, not just like some guy's opinion, but the Bible tells us that this guy Melchizedek is a priest 
of God Most High. Doesn't tell us much else about him. He's kind of a mysterious character. And he blessed him and said, Blessed be Abram, the God of, of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. And he gave him a tithe of all. So a couple things. Number one, Melchizedek is a king. Number two, Melchizedek is a priest. Number three, Melchizedek blesses Abram. And number four, Abram, in response, gives a tithe to Melchizedek. Everybody got those four things? You're going to need to know those four things as we read through Hebrews chapter 7. Melchizedek's a king. Melchizedek's a priest. Melchizedek blesses Abram. And Abram, in response, gives a tithe to Melchizedek. All right? Back to Hebrews 7. For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, who met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. So just recounting that story in a sense. To whom also Abraham gave a tenth of all. We talked about that. First being translated king of righteousness and then also king of Salem, meaning king of peace. And so, first of all, this guy is the king of Salem. The word Salem means peace. Like Salem is, you know, I'm not an expert on the ancient languages, but Salem is sort of like a form of shalom, right? You would know shalom in Hebrew probably means peace. So this guy is king of Salem, king of peace, all right? Salem is sort of a root that would become a part of the name of Jerusalem. So this guy, Melchizedek, he's the king of probably this area that we would now call Jerusalem, but in terms of the wording itself, he's the king of Salem, which means king of peace. All right? Number, uh, next point, the name Melchizedek itself means king of righteousness. So we got the king of Salem, king of peace, king of righteousness. He's the king of both righteousness and peace. That's not an accident. That's not an accident. Have you ever, and let me just say, that points us to who? Who's the king of righteousness and peace in our lives today? Jesus, right? But let me pause just for a teaching point just for a second. We all want to have peace, right? Have you ever had, tried to have peace without righteousness? Have you ever had that feeling like, I'm hiding something? I won't ask if you have that feeling right now, because I don't want to know. That's between you and God. But I've lived at various points in my life, thankfully a long time ago, where it's like, well, I hope mom doesn't find out, Right? You ever, had, you ever said, boy, I hope mom doesn't find out? You tell your buddies, hope mom doesn't find out. Hope dad doesn't find out. Ooh, dad finds out, it'd be worse if mom finds out. Right? Hope the teacher doesn't find out. Hope the IRS doesn't find out. Hope the boss doesn't find out. Right? When you're living like that, do you have peace? I don't think it's possible to have peace without righteousness. I don't think it's possible to have peace without righteousness. 
I have a dear friend. Um, I was trying to decide if I should share this or not. I think I will. I have a dear friend recently. I, got, I was involved in a transaction with him. And uh, in his mind, uh, integrity is like kind of a qualified thing, <laughs> right? And in my mind, it's like I can't cave on that because I got to stand up here and talk to you guys. I got to face my wife. I got to face my kids. I got to face God. You know, I, I feel like I got a shorter leash than most people, right? James talks about that, right? The guy that teaches, he's got a short leash. And I'm acutely aware of that. And so, you know, my mind, I'm like, but as I walked through this process, this guy was just like, and my heart goes out to him. He's a dear friend of mine. But it's like, he, he didn't have peace with this thing, right? And we want to have peace. Can I tell you this? Peace and righteousness go hand in hand. Now, having said that, there's lots of different kinds of righteousness, right? Paul talks about this, chapter 2, Romans. There's like chapter 1 is all about unrighteousness. Chapter 2 is all about self-righteousness, right? So self-righteousness is not righteousness because deep, 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 deep down, and maybe you're the only person on earth that knows it, but you know that it's not really righteousness, right? You know in your heart of hearts your own self-righteousness is not really righteousness. And so we have a righteousness. Romans chapter 3, verse 21 says, but now the righteousness apart from the law is revealed. It's the idea that we have the righteousness, not according to the law, not according to our religious system, not according to the church we grew up in, not according to our background, not according to what mom and dad's expectations were. We have a righteousness that's been basically imputed to us through Jesus Christ. And so therefore, we have peace. What does the beginning of all of Paul's letters say? How do they start out? Grace and peace. And what do we say every single time? You do not have peace without the grace. And by extension, why is that? Because you don't have peace without righteousness. And by the way, you can't have righteousness without grace. And so it fits this whole thing. I love this beautiful picture of this guy Melchizedek. What is he? He's the king of peace. He's also the king of righteousness. Why? Because those things are stuck together. You can't pull them apart. Peace and righteousness. Also, he says that this guy Melchizedek blessed Abraham. We'll read here in a minute. Verse 7 says that uh, now beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. So in the Old Testament system, in the, uh, and again to the Jewish mindset, if somebody was going to bless somebody else, the, the, you know, like the, the patriarch would bless the child, right? Uh, and it's not that, you know, anybody's better than anybody else, and, and you understand what I'm saying. It's not to get weird about that or super patriarchal or any of that, right? But, but the idea is that Abraham would have looked up to Melchizedek, Right? And he further validates that by the fact that he gave him a tithe. Okay? So we got a guy that's king of peace, king of righteousness. We know that he's priest of God most high, and we know that he blesses Abraham. We know that Abraham, in turn, gives him a tithe, indicating that he thought Melchizedek was 
was worthy of that honor. It goes on about Melchizedek. He's without father, without mother, without genealogy, having neither beginning of days nor end of life, but made like the Son of God, remains a priest continually. Now, some have taken this verse to mean that this guy Melchizedek was sort of one of these pre-incarnate appearances of Jesus. And those, we see those throughout the Old Testament, right? Uh, Jesus, uh, without really identifying who he was necessarily, but you can read from the context, appeared to Abraham. Remember the uh, three guys came to Abraham, or two guys come to Abraham, and uh, one of them is Jesus. And um, uh, he appears to um, uh, Joshua. Remember uh, when Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego were thrown into the fiery furnace? Nebuchadnezzar looks in, how many people does he see? Four, right? Who's the fourth one? Jesus, right? So Jesus shows up in the Old Testament, and some people say that Melchizedek himself was Jesus. Some people say, no, what it means that uh, without father, without mother, without genealogy, begin, having neither beginning of days nor end of life means that we just have no record of that, right? Now, truthfully, it doesn't really matter, but the idea is either this was an Old Testament appearance of Jesus or it's a picture of an Old Testament appearance of Jesus with uh, all the lessons that we can get from that. Is that fair? So, you know, we don't have to split hairs over that. The point is this guy Melchizedek is pretty mysterious and there's not a lot mentioned about him in the scripture. So either way, we see that he's a king and he's a priest and that would have sort of stretched the Jewish mindset a little bit. Verse 4, now consider how great this man was, to whom even the patriarch Abraham gave a tenth of the spoils. So, you know, again, like I said, Abraham gave a tithe to this guy, Melchizedek, and so uh, Abraham would have very much looked up to him. And indeed, those who are the sons of Levi who receive the priesthood have a commandment to receive tithes from the people according to the law, that is, from their brethren, though they have come from the loins of Abraham. But he whose genealogy is not derived from them received tithes from Abraham and blessed him who had the promises. Now, beyond all contradiction, the lesser is blessed by the better. Here, mortal men receive tithes, but there he receives them. Uh, again, another reason why some people would think this is Jesus, because it's contrasted with mortal men, of whom it is witnessed that he lives. Even Levi, who receives tithes, paid tithes through Abraham, so to speak, for he was still in the loins of his father, when Melchizedek met him. Everybody got that? It's clear as mud. It's clear as mud. So let me try to unpack it for you, okay? And then it'll be really clear as mud. So he's like, so he explains to us who this guy Melchizedek is, okay? We've, we've kind of unpacked that a little bit. And now he's going to compare this Melchizedekian priesthood with the priesthood of Aaron. Now let me back up a second. In the Old Testament law, there was, well, okay, in the, in the Jewish culture, in the Jewish nation, there was Abraham, Isaac, his son Isaac, his son Jacob, right? Jacob had 12 sons, right? One of those sons was a guy by the name of Levi, okay? Levi's probably great-grandson was a guy by the name of Aaron, the brother of Moses, all right? And so sometimes you'll hear about the the priesthood of Aaron. Sometimes you'll hear about the Levitical priesthood, the priesthood of Levi. The point is it comes from Levi, one of the 12 sons of Jacob, through the line of Aaron, okay? Now, in the Old Testament system, you know how you became a priest? You were born one, right? Because you were a descendant of Aaron. 
No schooling, no degree, no nothing, no spiritual gifts inventory test. A descendant of Aaron, right? So as you can imagine, some of them were righteous and some of them were corrupt and, you know, you see the whole bit, right? But the point is, he's making a distinction now. You got the priesthood of Melchizedek and you got the priesthood of Aaron, all right? Now, I said Aaron's great-grandfather was Levi, right? And his father was Jacob, and his father was Isaac, and his father was Abraham, right? And Abraham gives a tithe to Melchizedek. I'm going up like this. You notice I'm going up, right? I'm, I'm, I'm getting graphic on you now, right? We're, we're, we got a multimedia presentation, right? My right hand and my left hand, okay? So we're going to say Abraham gives a tithe to Melchizedek because he regards him as a better, right? But keep in mind, the Old Testament system is a very patriarchal Jewish system, right? So Abraham, remember, he gave birth to what? Isaac, and then Isaac to Jacob, and then Jacob to Levi, and then Levi to a couple other guys, and then a couple other guys to Aaron, right? So what's he saying? He's saying, in a sense, Aaron, in the loins of Abraham, or he says here, in the, for example, he says Levi, we'll just say Levi. Levi, while still in the loins of Abraham, gave a tithe to Melchizedek. Make sense? Clear as muddy water now, right? So all that to say, he's making a point, the Jewish, the Jewish mindset would have understood this, that yes, there's a different priesthood. There's the priesthood of Melchizedek. There's the priesthood of Levi through the line of Aaron. But even the line of uh, this priesthood of Levi through the line of Aaron actually gave tithes before they were born through the person of Abraham to this greater uh, priest. He says, now, therefore, if perfection were through the Levitical priesthood, for under it people received the law, so not only did you get the priesthood, remember the priesthood is, the, is the, this collection of human beings who acted as priests. Well, through them, you got the Old Testament law. What further need was there that another priest should arise according to the order of Melchizedek and not be called according to the order of Aaron? For the priesthood being changed of necessity, there also is a change of the law. And so what he's saying here is, now we've got a different priest that Jesus is the priest according to the order of Melchizedek. But since uh, now with that, we're going to have a different sort of law, if you will, the law of righteousness, the law of grace. And he says, you know, perfection didn't come from the Levitical priesthood. And so therefore, perfection couldn't come from the law. So there had to be a different solution, a different priesthood with a different law. And so again, as we read in Romans chapter 3, there is now... A, but now the righteousness apart from the law is revealed, and that's the righteousness through Jesus. For he of whom these things are spoken belongs to another tribe from which no man has officiated at the altar. So the obvious uh, criticism of Jesus as a priest, you know, we, we say Jesus is our great high priest. Well, if you're a Jew, you'd say, wait a minute, that's impossible. Jesus was not from the line of Levi. Jesus was from the line of... Judah. 
Jesus was from the line of Judah. Remember Abraham had Isaac, Isaac had Jacob, Jacob had 12 sons. One of them was Levi, another one was Judah. Well, wait a minute, Jesus is not from Judah, or Jesus is not from Levi, so he can't be our priest. And so that's the whole point of all this, is that I know he's not from Levi, the writer would say. He's from Judah, but as a, as a descendant of Judah, he's still a qualified priest according to the order of Melchizedek. Verse 14. For it is evident that our Lord arose from Judah, of which tribe Moses spoke nothing concerning priesthood. And it is yet far more evident if in the likeness of Melchizedek there arises another priest who has come, not according to the law of a fleshly commandment, but according to the power of an endless life. And so the idea is Melchizedek, whether he was a pre-incarnate Jesus or we just don't have much detail, he's a picture of an endless life which points us to Jesus. And for he testifies, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. Now we've read this a million times through these books chapters in in Hebrews you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek that's a quote from Psalm 110 so keep in mind Psalm 110 happened many centuries after Abraham after Isaac after Jacob after Levi after Aaron and so somehow after all that establishment of the Jewish system the Jewish law the Jewish heritage after all that the writer of Psalms still feels the need to point to a priest according to the order of Melchizedek. It's a messianic psalm that points to uh, the Messiah, Jesus, who's a priest according to Melchizedek. For on the one hand, there's an annulling of the former commandment because of its weakness and unprofitableness, for the law made nothing perfect. On the other hand, there's a bringing in of a better hope through which we draw near to God. So the writer is acknowledging you know, there's an important distinction to be made. We do not approach God through the priesthood of, of the Old Testament priests or the law of the Old Testament law. It's now void. We now approach God through Jesus and the righteousness of, that we get through Jesus by grace through faith. And so it's a distinction. And you say, well, I'm not Jewish. You, you want to say, here's what you want. Here's the question you're asking. If We'll jump ahead here in a minute. Uh, chapter 8, verse 1. Now, this is the main point of the things we are saying, right? That might be the most insightful statement I'm going to read today, right? Because you're thinking, what is the point? <laughs> what is the point? The point is they had a religious system. And they were secure in that religious system. And they were, they were wanting to go back to it. It just felt safe. It felt felt tidy it felt neat it's 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 a lot more tangible than walking by faith and receiving the grace through a relationship with Jesus Christ but the whole point of this whole book is that is so much better than religion can I tell you this honestly so again let's just say for the sake of argument none of us are Jewish by heritage but we are religious by heritage and I feel like sometimes my job as a, as, uh, as a Bible teacher, as, as whatever, I mean, I, I feel like I'm like a guy with a garden hose, right? And like some people, I'm trying to wash all the f- filth of the world off of them, right? Including myself, by the way, right? And there are other people, and can I just say this? The job is just as hard, if not harder, that I got to wash all the religion off of them. Does that make sense? 
I, sometimes I have to wash the expectations off of them. Sometimes I've got to wash the, 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 the pompousness off of them, frankly. And, well, I'll just say it out loud. In my experience, it's a little harder to get these people clean than these people. Is that fair? So, yeah, we're not Jewish. But we are religious. And sometimes it even, you know, sometimes it's like, you know, well, I grew up in this church and, you know, I understand this doctrine. As soon as you tell me, as soon as, you, as soon as we start talking doctrine, man, I'm busting out my fire hose. You know, and usually the doctrine will come with a book, and usually it comes with, you know, a, a person that, you know, is like the head thinker on that doctrine in our day and age. And, and I'm just, you know, I'm trying to figure out how to put two fingers in my ears and still hold the fire hose, right? Because I'm trying to wash off religion, right? This person I'm trying to wash off sin, if they're, if they're sincere, if they're sincere, it's just like grace of God, grace of God, and they're just like so fresh. Why do I say that? Most of us came here with some religion stuck to us, including me, by the way. That's why it's a lifelong journey, honestly, to wash it, to wash it off, whether, whether it's regardless of where it's from. Verse 20. And inasmuch as he was not made priest without an oath, for they have become priests without an oath, but he with an oath by him who said to him, the Lord has sworn and will, not relent, and will not relent. In case you didn't catch this before, you are a priest forever according to the order of Melchizedek. By so much more, had Jesus has become a surety of a better covenant. And so, um, again, if you're an Aaron-descended priest, you weren't, do it, you weren't descended, I mean, you weren't made priest by anything other than your, your birthright. But if you're a Jesus priest, you're, the Lord swore by oath he has sworn and will not relent. Again, a quote from Psalm 119, that Jesus is a priest. How long? Forever, according to the order of Melchizedek. By so much more, Jesus has become surety of a better, and I want you to notice this word, covenant. This word, covenant, in verse 12. I'm sorry, verse 22. The word covenant is mentioned 17 times in the book of Hebrews. This is the first mention of it. And the idea is that we're going to transition now, okay? We've been talking about the person of Jesus according to the order of Melchizedek as opposed to the order of the priesthood according to the person of Aaron. But with that comes the covenant of Jesus. So he's working honestly pretty hard to establish that Jesus 
the priesthood of Jesus is better than the priesthood of Aaron, but with the priesthood of Aaron comes a much more better covenant. And Jesus uh, becomes surety for that better covenant. Now, the word surety, often we see that, uh, we think of that as like um, a cosigner. Right, the book of Proverbs says, "Don't become surety for someone in a in a in their debt." And the idea is, and I think it's probably biblically sound, that it's not a good idea to become a cosigner on a loan for somebody else. Now, I won't ask by show of hands if anybody's ever done that, um, but you know, even from a just a purely secular, logical, wisdom kind of standpoint, right? Um, too often, the guy that becomes the cosigner becomes the signer. Right. And so uh, that's just wisdom from Proverbs. But the idea of surety in this context, really, the the word means one who guarantees that the terms of an agreement will be carried out. Jesus does that. Jesus guarantees that the terms of the agreement will be carried out. What's the agreement? The agreement is the covenant. It's the way we approach God. It's, the, it's our access to God. It's that whole thing that the veil was torn in two from top to bottom that separated the holy place from the holy of holies and, and, and made available the, the presence of God. That's the covenant. Also, there were many priests because they were prevented by death from continuing because he, but he, because he continues forever, has an unchangeable priesthood. Therefore, I'm, therefore he is also able to save to the uttermost, those who come to God through him, since he always lives to make intercession for them. So again, how many priests do we need according to the Jesus priesthood? One. How many do we need according to the Levitical priesthood? Need a new one every time the old one dies off, right? And so, you know, Jesus priesthood goes on forever. For such a high priest was fitting for us, who is holy, harmless, undefiled, separate from sinners. That was Jesus. That couldn't have been said of all the other priests. And has become higher than the heavens. Who does not need daily as those high priests to offer up sacrifices first for his own sins and then for the people's sins. For this he did once and for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints as high priests men who have weakness. But the word of the oath which came after the law appoints the son son who has been perfected forever. So again, the, the priests, the Levitical priests, they were human beings. They were sinners. They had to offer sacrifices for themselves and for the people. Jesus was perfect. He offered himself he offered himself as a sacrifice, not for his sin, but for everybody else's sin. And um, so he didn't need to do anything else. He remains a priest forever. Chapter eight, verse one, the question we're all asking. Now this is the main point of the things we are saying. We have such a high priest. We have such a high priest who is seated at the right hand of the throne of the majesty in the heavens a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle which he which the lord erected and not man and so the levitical priesthood right it's like man i got to keep sacrificing those lambs i hope the priest is not corrupt and i hope he sacrifices enough lambs uh you know for himself and for me and I hope that, you know, everything works out okay, but it's just very dependent upon, uh, you know, following through, and, it's, and it's, it's a lot of responsibility, honestly, and history proved that we're not real good at that, and, you know, if, 
if my dad was a failure and his 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 dad was a failure, it doesn't look too good for me, right? As opposed to Jesus. And Jesus is our high priest. Jesus brings a better covenant. And Jesus is our advocate. I think of it like this. I think of Jesus, like Jesus is seated at the right hand of God. Like he's got God's ear, right? Now I know that they don't, you know, they're probably not sitting there manifesting human form, right? But for my, for my brain, uh, I'm okay thinking like that, right? And it's, it's almost like, uh, and again, the Trinity is beyond our brains, okay? But work with my limitations, and I'll work with yours, right? It's almost like God is, God is the head of the Trinity authority, and God is, God is loving, God is also just, and God is the one that judges the living and the dead, right? And I have Jesus as my advocate, knowing that Whenever the subject of Scott Murphy comes up, Jesus is right there next to his right ear saying good things about me. Right? Because I'm awesome. No! I just, you know, lesson like this, you got to wake everybody up once in a while, right? So it's almost like he's... He's speaking into God's right ear on my behalf based on His righteousness and not my own. Right? Now, do I have peace? Remember back at the beginning, we talked about peace? Do I have peace? Yeah. Yeah, peace. What about that old system? That priesthood of Aaron, right? Man, I said something stupid, did something stupid, yelled at somebody stupidly. I got to bring an animal and sacrifice it. In my mind, I read through the Old Testament law and I think like this. Maybe you guys do too. And I think, I got to bring that thing all the way to the temple, sacrifice the, the lamb, right? Walk out the temple, trip on the last step, right? Say one of those four or five words that I was always hoping mom wouldn't find out about. Right? I can't even go back home and get another lamb. Right? I didn't even make it down the steps. And in my mind, I'm like, what would I ever do in life except go back and forth, home to temple, home to temple, home to temple? Right? Is there any peace in that? No. I guarantee you, in my life, I'd be home to temple, home to temple, home to temple, home to temple, home to temple. Right? So we can either live like that. Again, we're not Jewish. But religiously, believe me, I've seen it. We tend to live like that. Right? Or I can live with this idea that Jesus is up there talking about me in God's right ear based on his goodness. And I get peace, right? Peace through grace 
by faith. It's beautiful. Notice also it says here, Jesus, we have such a high priest, he's seated. I like the idea that he's seated. What does that tell me? The work's all done. He's not pacing. He's not fretting. He's not like wringing his hands. He's not like jittery, right? He's seated. It's all done. Where is he seated? Seated at the right hand of God. And where is he seated? In the heavens. What do the heavens signify? Everything above earth. Everything in heaven is above everything on earth. Even those relationships, even the financial challenge, even the physical challenge, yeah, yeah the heavens are above all of that. Everything that happens on earth, all the stuff that we work through, the heavens are above all of that. So what do we see? We see Jesus, our advocate, our high priest, seated, not pacing, at the right hand of God, not like distant from Him, in the heavens, above all of our life circumstances. It's a great picture. And the idea of the true tabernacle tells us that the old tabernacle was just a, was just a, a picture of our heavenly worship. He says he's a minister of the sanctuary and of the true tabernacle, which the Lord erected, not man. Man built the, the earthly tabernacle. For every high priest, verse 3, is appointed to offer both gifts and sacrifices. Therefore, it's necessary that the one also have something to offer. And so, you know, every priest had to offer something, and Jesus offered himself. And the word here for to offer mean, in the Greek means to offer once and for all. Again, Jesus did this once and for all. He didn't have to keep going back and forth like we would. Verse 4, for if he were on earth, he would not be a priest since there are priests who offer the gifts according to the law who served the copy and shadow of the heavenly things as Moses was divinely instructed when he was about to make the tabernacle. For he said, see that you make all things according to the pattern shown you on the mountain. But now he, Jesus, has obtained a much more, has obtained a more excellent ministry inasmuch as he is also mediator of a better covenant, which was established on better promises. And so the new covenant's established by Jesus. It's better because, number one, the priesthood is better than, the, than that of the Levites. And number two, the place, heaven, is better than the earthly tabernacle. So he's kind of carrying this thought out. For if that first covenant had been faultless, then no place would have been sought for a second one. So there's nothing wrong with the Old Testament covenant. This is important to know. Sometimes we have this idea that God tried that Old Testament thing and that didn't work, and so he went back to the drawing board and came up with the Jesus thing, right? And sometimes that's how we kind of grow up thinking about it. But the reality is, you know, we've, we said earlier, Jesus showed up in the Old Testament all the time, right? Jesus, Colossians, tells us that he was in the beginning. He created all things. In him, all things hold together. Jesus has been around since the beginning. He, he didn't wait to show up for plan B, right? But why do we have plan A? Why do we have, I, mean, I won't even call it plan A. Why do we have that Old Testament law? To show us that we are, in fact, losers, right? Because if I said, tell you what, we got a religious system here. If everybody does XYZ, 
and does it faithfully, and does it faithfully for the rest of your life, you get into heaven and you're good. There'd be some of us, probably me included, that would say, all right, bring it on. I think I can do that. If I try real hard, I think I can do that, right? Like a New Year's resolution. I think I can do that, right? The Old Testament law, the Old Testament record, really, is the revelation to us that man cannot do that. And if none of them could do it, guess what? It's not real likely that I could do it, right? So I got a better system, Jesus. Does it mean God's done with the Jews? No. Prophetically, prophetically, we've talked about this before, prophetically, God has a very specific plan for the nation of Israel, for the Jewish people. But guess what? How will they approach God? Through the law? Through Jesus. Doesn't mean God's done with the Jews, but it means that the Jews will approach God through Jesus Christ. They will recognize him as their Messiah. And they'll stop looking for another one. So that's prophetic. But please don't think that God had a plan A and a plan B. Plan A didn't work and plan B is Jesus. It's not that. God let the Old Testament law work out so we could realize how unrighteous we really are. And we have the privilege of looking at it historically, right? So we don't have to go through all that. We can say, yep, they tried. God gave them a good system. There's nothing wrong with that law. God gave them a good system. And they couldn't keep any of it. And as a matter of fact, neither can I. Because, you know, I grew up learning the Ten Commandments, right? Of all the commandments in the Old Testament law, uh, you know, they're, they're basically summarized in the, in the Ten, right? And Jesus summarized those Ten and love, love God and love others, right? And I'm like, oh, okay, so he nailed it down to two for me because he knew I was kind of thick-headed, right? How am I at that? Oh, I guess I need God's grace, right? And so the whole point of the new covenant, the better covenant, is that we need God's grace. Verse, verse 8, because finding fault with them, he says, and this is a quote from Jeremiah, he says, behold, the days are coming, says the Lord, when I will make a new covenant with the house of Israel and with the house of Judah, not according to the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day when I took them by the hand to lead them out of the land of Egypt, because they did not continue in my covenant. And I disregarded them, says the Lord. For this is the covenant I will make with the house of Israel after those days, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. None of them shall teach his neighbor and none his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for all shall know me, from the least of them to the greatest of them. For, why, for I will be merciful to their un unrighteousness and their sins and their lawless deeds. I will remember no more. So we've got to put this in the context, okay? So we're almost done. And I know these chapters are work, so thank you for working through them. But the context here is very interesting. This is written by the prophet Jeremiah. And, the, and it's, written when, it's written to uh, during a time when several of the captives got carried off to Babylon already. Remember Babylonian captivity happened in three different waves, 605 B.C., 597 B.C., and then finally 586 B.C.? Well, this was written during that interim before the final demise of, of Jerusalem. But it's written when some of those captives are over there, and you've got to think they're wondering, like, 
Did God forsake us? Did God leave us? Or we, where are we at in this whole Jewish thing? This whole Jewish experiment. Where are we at with this? Because where I sit, it looks like I'm captive in Babylon. And God, through the mouth of Jeremiah, so graciously as he often so does with us, it's like we have this burden and his answer for it is so much greater than even what we thought to even ask. And he says, yeah, I'll bring you back, to, I'll bring you back from Babylon. Fine, whatever, right? It's almost like I'm not minimizing it, but it's almost like, yeah, I'll bring you back from Babylon to Jerusalem. Sure, but I'm going to do something even better. I'm going to bring, this is how I'm going to deal with the, nation, the house of Israel in those days. The day is going to come when I, when I regather all the house of Israel. Again, this is prophecy. I'm going to regather all the house of Israel, and they're going to approach me in a new way. They're going to approach me in a way that is based on grace. And I'm going to put my law in their mind, and I'm going to write my law on their hearts, and I'm going to be their God, and they shall be my people. It's going to be relational. And they're going to all know me from the least to the greatest, and I'm going to be merciful and their sin and their lawless deeds I will not even remember. Is that crazy? That's crazy. That spoken to the Jewish people in Babylon who are saying, hey, are we stuck here? Are we going to come back to, to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple? He's like, it's going to be way better than that. Yeah, okay, physically, yeah, you'll come back after 70 years. That's fine. But ultimately, it's going to be way better. And that's how he deals with the nation of Israel. But by extension, right, the whole point of the book of Hebrews is to the Christians. I mean, that's to the Jewish mindset of Christianity, but it applies to us, the religious mindset of Christianity. And that is, we don't approach God through, through any law, through the Old Testament law or any law, right? Our, you know, doctrinal statements law, our, you know, any of that, our religious system that we set up. We approach God through faith in Jesus Christ. Verse 13. In that he says a new covenant, he's made the first one obsolete. Now what is becoming obsolete and growing old is ready to vanish away. So what he's saying here is, yeah, the Old Testament system is obsolete. We have Jesus way better than religion we have a relationship with Jesus that's way better than religion we can still learn those principles from Jewish history the principles from the Old Testament law but we don't approach God through the Old Testament law we don't approach God through any religious system we approach God through the person of Jesus Christ You ever had a relationship with a person? Let's say it's a coworker. Not like, well, I'll just, maybe I'll give you another example. When I was a kid, there were times I had two older brothers, right? And if I gave you a lot of detail about my two older brothers and their treatment of me, you'd say, wow, it's a wonder you're so well-adjusted. And 
And I remember times when my mom would say, you love your brothers because they're your brothers. And in my mind, I thought, yes, mom, you are correct. I am supposed to love my brothers, therefore I do. I love my brothers. Yes, I do. Right? And there have been times that we've told our kids that about their siblings. Who wants a check-the-box relationship with anybody? Right? Who wants an obligatory relationship with anybody, much less God Almighty? Who wants a kill-the-animal relationship with the God of all creation, right? Don't we want, don't we at our core of who we are and frankly who we were designed to be by a loving creator that didn't create us accidentally over millions of years? Who are we at our very core? We are people who crave love. We are people who crave sincere and authentic relationships, right? How much more so with the God of all creation who's honestly capable of judging us and sending us to hell? We have a profound need for a loving relationship with a loving God. And guess what? He's delivered it. He's totally delivered it. And so we can approach him, not by law, not by religious duty, not by I make my feel, myself feel better by showing up at church, but because he loved me and he died for me and I just want to live my life saying thanks. Genuinely, authentically, faithfully, obediently to the end until I hear, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Let's pray. Lord, we are so thankful for your amazing grace. We're even thankful that you let history play out throughout the Old Testament to show us how frail humanity really is, how prone we are to sin and corruption. And Lord, we don't need to look too far inward to realize that. But Lord, we want to we embrace our relationship with you. Lord, we want to have that kind of peace that only comes through your grace. And so Lord, help us to, help us to just take that, that grace and experience that peace in our own lives. Have your way with us, Lord. Please guide us and lead us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Everybody have an awesome, awesome week.